You know, it's, uh, I've known Jason for almost 10 years, and uh, watching that video this week and thinking about it, um, we made it in the summer of 2013, and thinking about who Jason was then and who Jason is now, God has formed him through some incredibly challenging seasons. And I'm not sure Jason would be the man that he is today if that fire hadn't happened and that, that terrible summer hadn't happened in his life. And as I was thinking about his experience, I started thinking about my own experience. And, and the truth is my family's roots began amidst adversity. Danny, my wife, we met 10, 10 years ago this summer, back when people wore Abercrombie and Fitch and, and white sweatshirts. And, uh, and we met while serving in ministry together at a church in Phoenix. And one day I was walking into a meeting and she texted me and she said, hey, can you pray for me? I said, yeah, what's up? She said, my boss is missing. I'm like, like he took a long lunch and didn't come back. Like what's going on? She goes, no, the court called and he didn't show up this morning. He was an attorney. His wife just called and he didn't come home last night and no one knows where he is. And the truth is he'd gone flying in his Cessna. He was a private pilot with a friend on a Sunday morning to Sedona and four miles outside of Sedona, his plane went under the radar and it wasn't discovered for two and a half years. Two and a half years later, they found the, the wreckage and two skeletons in the plane. And so Danny and that lawyer's family and so many other people, their lives were changed forever. Danny came in with the attorney's father, who was a well-known attorney in Phoenix as well, closed down the firm. He wrote her a check to cover a couple weeks, a couple months of salary but she walked into one of the most difficult seasons of her life. How was she going to pay her bills? How was she going to pay for student loans? How was she going to pay for uh, insurance? How was she going to find the new job when she had just started practicing and didn't have any experience and this guy taking a risk and hiring her and now how is she going to get a, another job? And, and we were beginning a friendship in this season and so I became this support system for her as we started walking forward together and it was in the midst of that that we fell in love. And we discovered in that season that if we could get through that together, I mean, we'd get through anything together. We have a, a motto as a family, we're savages. We do hard things together. It's just kind of our, our motto. And what's happened is over the years, we've gone back to that season and that plane crash again and again to say, hey, if we can get through this adversity, we can get through anything. And what we learned in that process, those principles are things we continue to apply today. You see, we were formed together and strengthened by adversity, not ease. And what we learned is something I hope you have learned or come to learn soon, and that's that easy things don't change us. Easy things don't change us. We would love all of us for the rest of this year to be safe and comfortable and easy, but the truth is, if that's the case, we're going to be the same people on December 31st than we were on July 17th. Because we're not transformed by easy things. No, adversity teaches us things that success cannot. And so many of the things that we learn, so many of the places that we grow are from crisis. My dad's been a pastor in Las Vegas at the same church for 34 years. What that means is that I've, I've forgotten about 1,000 or 1,500 of his sermons. I just, I mean, I don't remember them. I was eight years old playing the dot game or tic-tac-toe and I just tuned out. But one of the things I remember my dad saying over and over again uh, is this quote. He said, we're all headed into, in the middle of, or heading out of a crisis. We're all headed into, in the middle of, or heading out of a crisis. I know this is really encouraging for a Sunday morning. I promise it's going to get good later. 
But the truth is, so much of our life is spent living from crisis to crisis. We remember powerfully the stories that you tell when you're at dinner with people. They're not the stories about, man, we went to Disneyland and it was wonderful. We went to the beach and everything went well. No, the stories that we tell are the stories of crisis and adversity. Those great stories are the stories where things didn't go the way that we planned it. And so many of us, our lives are defined by those kind of crises. And the truth is, those crises are the place where we're forced to bury our roots, to discover who we really are, to discover what truly matters, to figure out what is most significant in our lives. And we will never be well-rooted if we avoid struggle, difficulty, or adversity. That's why our main idea this morning is this, that God uses adversity to make us more like Jesus. God uses adversity to make us more like Jesus. And let me be clear. I didn't say that God causes adversity. So many times the adversity we experience is because of somebody else's destructive choice. Because as humanity, we're linked together. So many times the adversity we experience is because we made destructive choices and we bear the consequences. Sometimes adversity comes because we just live in a broken and fallen world. But the truth is we serve a God who wastes nothing who will use the raw materials of our lives to make us more like him, including difficulty, including adversity. And this is the story of Jesus. Last week, we looked at this moment in the life of Jesus where the heavens were torn open, Christ was baptized, and his father said, you are my beloved son, and you bring me great joy. We talked about hearing that spoken over us, how that's the truest thing about us. Today, we're going to look at what happens directly after that moment. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, open up to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's about three quarters of the way through the Bible. Mark is one of the four accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus. If you like action-packed books, Mark is your choice. He doesn't have a whole lot of long sermons from Jesus. He just tells you what happens, boom, boom, boom. And in Mark chapter 1, we're working through, in this series rooted, the beginning of the life and ministry of Jesus publicly and seeing what we can learn in our new beginning together. And so in the English Standard Version, this is what Mark 1, 12 through 13 says. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. And Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, I just want to look through this passage and draw your attention to some things. It says, the Spirit immediately. Now, the word in Greek for immediately means immediately. (laughs) The next word, drove him out, is the same word that's used in other places in the New Testament when Jesus exorcises and removes a demon from someone. It's a violent word says the Spirit immediately drove Jesus from that great moment in the water, hearing his Father speak over him, into the wilderness. This wilderness is, according to tradition, an area outside of Jericho. It's a very rough and dangerous land that dangerous people hung out in. You wouldn't choose to go there to spend your time. He was in that area for 40 days, He was tempted by Satan. This is the beginning of the warfare that Jesus does against Satan that will culminate in the cross. It says that he was with the wild animals. Now, we don't know what those wild animals were, 
But if you wander around Prescott sometimes, you'll encounter wild animals. Josh told us over lunch on Tuesday that he saw a bear a couple weeks ago. And so this probably was bears and coyotes and mountain lions. This was not a safe place for anyone to be, much less alone. And then it says the angels were ministering to him. There's no record that anyone was there with Jesus. It was just him by himself for 40 days in a dangerous land surrounded by dangerous things. And this experience clarifies a lesson that many of us already know, that in our lives, often a powerful moment of clarity with God is followed by a personal crisis. In our lives, often we have a powerful moment of clarity with God that is immediately followed by a crisis. Many of us have had the experience, I mean, we feel, we feel so close to God. We hear God speak so powerfully. Man, this moment is so good. And then the very next moment, the wheels fall off. The very next moment, everything has just gone terribly. We, how, could, how could I go? Like yesterday, everything was perfect and it was wonderful. Can I stay here forever? And then the next day, it's just as if that moment never happened. So many times in our lives, we will have a moment like Jesus where we hear God speak almost audibly and clearly where he says, you are my beloved and you bring me great joy. And then there will be an experience where we're challenged to say, do you actually believe that? Are you actually going to live in light of that? One of the best books I've read in several years is a book called Come Be My Light. It's the unfiltered uh, and probably unwanted biography of Mother Teresa. It's all of her personal journals that were published after she died without her permission. You feel a little bit bad reading them sometimes. Like, I don't think she wanted me to know this, you know? And this woman who is held up as a great saint, as a great servant, tells about the fact that she only has a handful of moments in her life where she ever heard from God. She talks about how most of her life she lived in darkness, feeling like she was distant from God. And she says, I lived in that darkness in light of what I heard God say in the light. Sometimes it was years between those moments. And that's true for so many of us who feel like we're distant from God, who feel like God is speaking and we're challenged to live in that darkness in light of that clarity. And so what we're going to see today in the life of Jesus is that's what his challenge was. And we're going to learn about the challenges and the temptations that he faced and how he overcame them. In the book of Matthew chapter 4, if you'll turn there one book earlier, we see a lot more nuance and texture and detail that Mark left out. Matthew chapter 4 tells the exact same story that Mark tells in Mark chapter 1. But Matthew gives us all of the detail that Mark left out. And so in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, we learn about three temptations that Jesus faced that I believe we face too. And those begin in chapter 3, sorry, in chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. This is what we read. And the tempter came and said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The first temptation Jesus faced, and you can follow along in your handout if you have one, the first temptation Jesus faced is to be relevant. To be relevant. And it's a temptation that we face too. See, Jesus was tempted, turn these stones into bread. 
What we learn from the earlier section of Matthew 4 is in these 40 days in the desert, Jesus fasted. He didn't eat anything. And he was hungry. I don't know about you, but I rarely last four hours between eating, and Jesus has now lasted 40 days. And so he's hungry. And so the tempter comes and says, hey, just turn these stones into bread. Show the people around and the world that you have value. Do something to prove yourself. And so Jesus is challenged, does he trust God? The reason that we fast is not to show how godly we are. The reason that we fast is to depend on God. And if Jesus had turned the stones into bread, he'd be no longer depending on God, he'd be depending on himself. And there are moments in all of our lives where we end up at crossroads, where we have to choose, will I depend on myself or will I depend on God? Will I go the way that God wants me to go or will I go the way that the world wants me to go? Will I do the thing that God has called me to or will I do the thing that's comfortable that will gain me the approval of others? Many of us live in places and we work in places and we have friends around us where we're tempted to prove our worth. Hey, do something. Show people that you have something to offer. Show people, achieve things, produce things, perform things. I heard someone say recently that you're only as good as your last at bat. Man, that's so exhausting to live like that, where every day you have to show up and prove your worth, prove your value. You have to show people that you have something to offer. And Jesus was tempted like we are to do something to show the world that you have possibility, that you are capable. And instead, Jesus says, no, I'm going to depend on and live on the words of God, not the words of other people. The second temptation that he faces fleshes out in verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The second temptation that we face that Jesus also did is the temptation to be spectacular. To be spectacular. Satan takes Jesus to a place where everyone could see him. And he says, Jesus, you have the power. You have the possibility. Do something to gain the admiration and approval of everyone. In that moment, Jesus was tempted to become a circus act, to turn his ministry into a sideshow. And he knew this wasn't his father's will. He knew to go outside of that will was to test God. This is a temptation I face, even on this stage, to say something worth writing down, to do something you'll talk about on Tuesday, to show off, to show that I can do something spectacular. Can I share something with you? I think one of our greatest fears as humans today is that we're just ordinary, or even worse, boring. I think some of us deep down, if we were really honest, would say, one of my greatest fears is that I'm living an ordinary life, that other people think my life is boring. And one of the things that makes this even worse is social media. Many people in my generation, when asked what their biggest dream in life is, is that they want to be famous. And the reason why 
is because in our world, you do simple, silly, sometimes even dumb stuff, and then you get famous for it. There was a woman, she went in her car and she bought a little mask and she took a video of herself going, you know, Chewbacca lady. And then 200 million people saw that and she was on the Today Show. And so many of us go, man, my life is boring, you know? Like I went to Kohl's too, but I didn't go on the Today Show, you know? And so we have this, we have this sense that our life is very unspectacular. We scroll through our feet and go, man, they're having a great day. My day is boring, you know? Man, they're on vacation and I'm staying at home this year. Man, they can afford that, but I can't. Stephen Furtick says, we compare our behind-the-scenes footage with everyone else's highlight reel. See, what happens is you go online and see the one or two moments that were the high points of somebody's day. You see the carefully edited and filtered moments that they want to share with you, and then you compare laundry to that, or you compare vacuuming to that, or you compare the boring moment that you're in to that, and you go, man, I feel very unspectacular. I feel like I don't have worth or value. I feel like what I'm doing really isn't that important. And like that, Jesus was tempted to go, am I going to do something spectacular, or am I going to be faithful to God? Am I going to do the moment that everyone will go, wow, or am I going to continue to plug away at what God has called me to? The third temptation of Jesus comes in verses 8 through 10. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of this world and their glory, and he said to him, all of these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The third temptation that Jesus faced was to be powerful. The third temptation we face is to be powerful. Satan said, look, just bow down to me, and you can have all the power. You can rule this world. All you have to do is worship me. And some of us would go, why would Jesus be tempted by that? I mean, he was God. I mean, I've read this passage probably... 15 or 20 times in my life, and it wasn't until this week that I realized something that I've been missing all along that I'm sure some of you have been missing too. The reason why this was tempting was because this was the easy way. If Jesus had bowed down and worshiped Satan, then he would have gained all the power Satan had, and he wouldn't have needed the cross. This was the easy way out. This was the ripcord. This was the eject button. This was the avoid the beatings, avoid the scourgings, avoid the nakedness, avoid the exposure, avoid the pain. If he had bowed his knee, then we wouldn't have any idea of the significance of the cross. How many of us have moments in our life where we're tempted to take the easy way out? Where we're tempted to stay in control where we're tempted to go the way of least resistance. I don't know about you, but I love being in control. I mean, how many of you, the worst moment is when someone else in the house has the remote control and you have to watch what they watch. This is a metaphor for life. Most of us, the worst thing for us is not being in control. And the truth is, control is a myth. You're one phone call away from realizing how little control you have. You're one bad decision by someone else 
away from realizing how little control you have. See, the reason that control and power is so tempting is because so many of us are terrified of being vulnerable. If you're a Star Trek fan, you know the the word shields up. And most of us live that way, shields up. We live maintaining power and control. The staff and I are reading a book right now that goes along with this passage by a man named Henry Nouwen called In the Name of Jesus. And the best quote in the book is this, the temptation to power is greatest when intimacy is perceived as a threat. It's still a little bit early in the morning, and for some of you, you haven't had your coffee yet, so I'll explain it to you. There's some of us who, if we were really honest, would say we feel like if people really knew us, they'd be disappointed because we don't have it all together. We project that we do. We project, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. How are you doing? Oh, I'm really busy. How are you doing? Oh, life is great. But if we were really honest and gave our not church answer, if we said, do you really want to know? Man, everything's a mess. I have no idea what's going on. I'm in over my head. But that's hard to do while Jamie's playing, you know, up here, you know, like. So we just say, fine, good, whatever. See, the temptation to power is greatest when we're afraid of being vulnerable. When we're afraid of intimacy, it's very tempting to go, shields up. Don't get close to me. I'm not going to be honest with you. I'm not going to tell you the truth. And it's tempting in those moments to stay in control. Because it's easier. It's safer. And how many of us, if we were in Jesus' shoes and we said, bow to Satan or go to the cross, we would have bowed right there. Because it was the easy way. It was the safe way. It was the secure way. And yet in that moment, Jesus says, no, I'm not going to bow my knee because I follow and serve my father and I'm going to trust myself to him. And in that moment, he was formed. He was shaped. He was molded like we are by adversity. See, God uses adversity to make us more like Jesus. And one of the reasons that I know that is because the disciplines that Jesus used are the same disciplines that we can use that can shape us. And the first discipline that Jesus used that we can use is meditating on Scripture. Meditating on Scripture. I'm not talking about going to Sedona, finding some crystals and going, "Mm." I'm talking about reading and leaning into the Bible. Confession for you, I gave up doing Bible reading plans. I know some people do Bible reading plans. You know, you start the year, you're going to read through the Bible. The problem is I get to Valentine's Day and I'm 40 days behind. (laughs) 45 days into the year. I've had five good days, you know. A couple of years ago, some of my buddies, including Jason, who you met earlier, we decided we were really stupid. We decided to read through the Bible in 90 days. And, and because I'm this recovering pastor's child that has to be perfect, um, I read from Isaiah to Malachi in three days. It was exhausting. I know I probably shouldn't say that in church. Reading the Bible is exhausting, but it was that, that way. 
And I realized that day that, that, that I have a problem sometimes with those Bible reading plans because the goal becomes getting through the plan. I'm just blazing through, not reading anything, just trying to finish it. See, my question for you is when you read the Bible, what is your goal? Is it to get through it? To check it off your list? Okay, I have my quiet time today. God bless me now, you know? Or is it to understand and become like God? See, the way that we read the Bible should not be like the way you pound a hamburger at the fast food place. It should be like the steak that you, your eyes got that big when you saw the price. And so you just, I mean, you just take each bite. See, the, the, the challenge is not how much Bible have you read. The challenge is how much of the Bible are you meditating and remembering and leaning into. And friends, you don't need very many words to get that. You could read a verse and that's enough for the whole week. And Jesus is saying, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so the way that we are formed in adversity is by meditating on Scripture. You find a verse and it just carries you because you're leaning into it, you're meditating on it. The second discipline that Jesus uses and that we can use is to trust the character of God. Trust the character of God. If you're in the middle right now of a season of adversity, I can promise you one of the things you're going to be challenged with is do I trust God? Not do I believe in him, not do I believe that he's out there, but do I trust that he is good and he wants what is best for me and that he is at work? When you go through crisis, it will challenge you to the core about how much you trust God. Audience participation, so I need you to raise your hand at this moment, okay? Here's a question. How many of you are not where you plan to be? Raise your hand. Keep them, keep them high. Look around. I mean, there's a lot of us in this room that are not living where we thought we would be, including me. I'll be honest. Prescott was not on my radar. It may scare some of you, but it's just true. I, I wasn't looking. But it became abundantly clear that this is something that was on God's radar. This was something God was doing, and, and I began to be challenged with, do I trust what God was doing even though it wasn't in my plan? Because so many of us love being in control. We love being the powerful one. And when circumstances come that completely rob us of control, we're challenged with, do you trust God? Not, have you been baptized? Not, how long have you been going to church? But in this moment, do you trust God? See, the truth is, God does extraordinary things in and through ordinary people. But it doesn't look like your plan. Life rarely looks like our plans. But sometimes that's the place where God does his greatest work. And so if you feel ordinary today, if you feel like your life isn't really anything spectacular, good. Because that's the exact place that God does his greatest work. And God uses adversity to make us more like Jesus. The third discipline that Jesus engaged 
and that we can engage that will form us is by choosing vulnerability. Choosing vulnerability. Remember that passage that said that Jesus was in the wilderness, fasting for 40 days with wild animals by himself fighting Satan. Not a position of strength. Not a position of safety. Not a position of control. And he had to depend on his father. And I don't know about you, but depending on God is scary. Depending on God is not safe. Being vulnerable is not a position that makes us just go to bed easy at night. When you have to depend on God, it puts you out there in places that you'd rather not be. But it's in those places of vulnerability that we have to depend on God like never before. What I've learned is that you can only be loved to the extent that you're known. You can only be loved to the extent that you're known. And if you live like this, with shields up all the time, people can never know enough about you to actually love you where you are because you never give them that information. And if you never let God in, if you keep your shields up to God and go, God, I'm never going to let you in. I'm never going to be vulnerable. I'm never going to really have to depend on you. I mean, how many of us live our lives where if we had our Visa card and our iPhone, we could handle anything that came our way? When was the last time in your life where if God didn't show up, you were toast? See, most of us smile and nod at vulnerability, but we don't live it because it's too scary. And that's why we have to choose vulnerability because if we don't choose vulnerability, then we'll never be shaped by adversity because we'll never actually need God. Practically, many of us live as if God doesn't exist because we don't need him on any given day to get through what we're going through. But if you're here today and you're in the middle of crisis, you go, Scott, if God doesn't show up today, I'm toast. That's the vulnerable place that God takes you when he's forming you and shaping you and molding you. Anybody ever been to the biosphere in Tucson? Biosphere is a cool place if you like nature. The biosphere was created by some scientists to study how our planet works. And they were thinking, man, if we can create in a controlled environment life, plants, nutrients, then we could export that to places where life can exist, like Mars. And so in the biosphere, several years ago, they began to discover how to grow trees faster in the biosphere than out in nature. And they were so excited that trees were growing faster. But they were devastated when they discovered that as fast as these trees were shooting up, they were tumbling over. They were never fully maturing in the biosphere. And the reason why is there is no wind in the biosphere. They learned that wind plays a major role in trees' life. The presence of wind makes a tree stronger and thus able to mature and not fall down due to its own weight. You see, when trees are in wind, it's the wind that keeps them constantly moving and developing a certain kind of wood called stress or reaction wood. And without stress or reaction wood, a tree will topple over on its own weight. But if a tree is next to wind, then it will contort itself to get in the best posture to receive light. 
It will be in the best posture to receive nutrients. In fact, without wind, a tree cannot survive. It is the adversity and the struggle that makes a tree thrive. And I read that and I said, that is so much the place where we live, where I live. Without adversity, I would not be where I am today. John Ortberg, who's a pastor and author I've learned a ton from, said this, if you ask people who do not believe in God why they do not, the number one reason will be suffering. Let's pause it right there. How many of you have somebody like that says, I don't believe in God because of suffering? I mean, it's the most common reason. Scott, how could God exist if Baton Rouge happened? Or if Minnesota happened? Or if Nice happened? Or if Orlando happened? How could God exist? There's so much suffering in the world. But if you notice the quote isn't done, there's a dot, dot, dot. If you ask people who believe in God when they grew the most spiritually, the number one answer will be suffering. I mean, how many of you, if you look back in your past, you go, man, I really sprouted up. I really became who I am in Christ. I really grew as a Christian. It wasn't in times of ease. It wasn't in times of safety and security. It wasn't on the beach in Cozumel, you know? It wasn't on your cruise in the Caribbean, unless you have one of those terrible cruises that made you never want to go on a cruise again, you know? The reason I don't go on cruises, you know? I watch the news, you know? But it's in those seasons of suffering that we grew and became who we are. If you sit around at dinner and you tell stories, you don't tell stories about your amazing vacation in the Caribbean that went perfectly well. No, what stories do you tell? The stories about life when all the wheels fell off. And then you're not going to believe what happened, you know? Those are the things that make incredible stories because those are the things that shape us and mold us and change us. We're not changed by easy things. We're not formed by easy things. That's why as soon as Jesus heard, you are my beloved son and you bring me great joy, immediately the spirit drove him out into the wilderness. Because it was in that place that Jesus could put his roots down in what he heard God say. And so many of you, you're about to head into or in the middle of a season that is crisis and formation. And your natural tendency is, done, eject, where's the ripcord? Get me out of this. And what you have to understand is God isn't looking to give you a way out. He's looking to give you a way through. And it's in this place that he is going to do his greatest work if you will open yourself up and trust him and lean into him. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the fact that you promise never to leave us nor forsake us. God, we thank you so much that you do not come to us as a distant God who knows nothing of our experience. You came and you made your dwelling among us. Every temptation that has seized us, you know in Jesus. Every pain, every loss, every struggle, you remember and you have experienced. And we come to you as one who knows our situation and our circumstance. God, I know I have some friends in this room who came today on their last rope, who came to church looking for a little sliver of hope in the midst of a dark, dark season. 
God, I believe there's some people in this room and some people who are watching online who are in the middle of something they didn't plan for or expect, and they want nothing else but to get out of this as fast as they can. And God, I believe that the words that they need to hear are lean in, don't run away. Open up, don't shut down. Trust more. Depend on yourself less and depend more on God. God, there are very few of us who are exactly where we thought we would be. And that's good news. Because your plans are greater than ours. Your ways are higher than ours. And so, God, I pray that you would meet us here in the place that we didn't plan for or expect, and I pray that you would do your greatest work in us. Accomplish things here that couldn't have been accomplished any other way. In your name we pray, amen. In a moment, the band's going to lead us in a song with a chorus that just simply goes like this, Christ is enough. And if you're not ready to sing that today, that's okay. But we want to give you a moment to come forward in a second. Our prayer partners will be here and just to pray. Maybe you just need to pour your heart out to God, honestly, for the very first time. Maybe you just need somebody to come lay a hand on you and pray for you. Maybe you just need to just sit in your seat and be silent. But God does some of his greatest work in the circumstances that we would have never asked for nor expected. And so I want to create a space today where you can meet God and hear what it is that you need to hear. The band is going to lead us. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com. Thank you.